All right, so uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Daniel, which we have been calling the faithfulness of a great man and the sovereignty of our great God. And now we come to this uh, Daniel chapter 24, or chapter 9, 24 to 27, uh, really the pinnacle of, of the book of Daniel. It's what everything has been building to, uh, these few verses here uh, in the Bible, uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. So uh, we will get into that in just a couple of minutes. But do you know that on September uh, 22nd, 2022, about six weeks ago, uh, NASA crashed a 1,200-pound rocket uh, into a tiny asteroid called Dimorphos, which is about 7 million miles away from Earth. And the purpose of it was to see that if they could potentially redirect the orbit of a particular asteroid. Not that that asteroid poses any particular threat to us on Earth, but if a future asteroid should be coming our way, uh, could we hit it with a rocket and divert it so it doesn't crash into the Earth? That was the point of this thing. So. Uh, let's just think for a second about how astounding it is, how impossible it seems that we could crash a rocket into an asteroid uh, 7 million miles away. Uh, just thinking about the engineering and the mathematical precision required for this uh, blows my mind. Uh, you look at that picture on the screen, uh, that little asteroid, Dimorphos, is about 160 meters across, you know, a football field and a half, that's it. And since it orbits a larger asteroid, that larger asteroid is called Didymus, which is about 780 meters across. So, you know, a big rock, I guess you might say, by Earth standards. Uh, but uh, Dimorphos she, uh, is shielded by Didymus a lot of the times because it orbits Didymus. So you, you can't hit it when uh, it's orbiting on the backside of Didymus. You have to hit it when it's clear of Didymus. And so, again, this asteroid is, is, uh, is 7 million miles from Earth. The rocket is going at 14,000 miles per hour. 14,000 miles per hour. And the rocket's only instruments on it are a GPS system and a camera that helps it distinguish the difference between the little rock and the big rock. That's all it's got on it, plus some engineers right in Houston uh, figuring out how this is going to go. Uh, so that's what it has. And so this photo here on the screen was taken 11 minutes before impact. Um, uh, I'm sorry, two and a half minutes before impact. Uh, this image was taken 11 seconds before impact, and this image was taken two seconds before impact. Isn't that cool? NASA hit the bullseye. Unbelievable, right? So I just think that's incredible. And scientists have since observed that, uh, in fact, they did manage to alter uh, the orbit of uh, this, this little asteroid, uh, Dimorphos, by about one degree, uh, which would be enough to miss Earth if we should be in such a position ever. And you can go on NASA's website yourself, actually, and you can see this collision if you're interested in that and watch this little puff of smoke as, uh, as the rocket hits the, uh, hits the asteroid. It's really cool. Uh, now, I have seen Larry uh, hit a hog from about 100 meters, a, a hog running in the other direction, and I think that's really impressive. But this, this is otherworldly. So uh, why do I mention all this to you? Well, I mention this to you because the prophecy of the 70 weeks that we are going to be studying today is even more stunning in its accuracy and precision than NASA's strike of Dimorphos uh, that we're talking about now. So, 
All right, a word about prophecy. When we're trying to interpret prophecy, uh, we have to approach it with humility, right? I'm not going to stand up here and tell you this is how it is and this is the only way it can possibly be. Uh, we, we just have to approach it with humility because the reason is uh, that, that you know, so people can be Christians and, and interpret prophecy differently. And the important thing to remember as we're talking about debates in prophecy is that these are debates among Christians, right? Uh, this is an intramural debate, we would call it. These are, are debates among people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and will most certainly be in the kingdom of heaven someday. So uh, these are not issues that we ought to divide over uh, because uh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we have to recognize that uh, if the other side of the, uh, of the aisle or the argument, as it were, didn't have persuasive arguments, uh, there would be no debate, right? We would just say this is how it is. Uh, so there are a couple of different ways to view prophecy, uh, this one in particular. Now, there are certainly critics of the book of Daniel, and those critics of the book of Daniel say, look, there's no way Daniel could possibly have written this prophecy. It's way too detailed. It's way too accurate. It had to be written after 164, uh, when the latest event that, that Daniel was talking about uh, in, that, that's been fulfilled in, in ancient Greece, in Antiochus Epiphanes, was fulfilled in 164 B.C. It had to be written after 164 B.C., I'm not going to spend any time on that view because we at Grace Redeemer Community Church believe that the Bible is true uh, and that it's accurate and that it was written by Daniel. Uh, so I'm just going to skip over those arguments. Uh, but there is a debate between amillennials and premillennials over how we interpret the book of Daniel. Now, <clears throat> amillennials say that we are now living in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Uh, and so uh, th we're in the 70th week right now. But premillennials say there is a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, and we are living in that now. And if that's not confusing enough, there are disagreements among amillennials and disagreements among premillennials within their own camps about how to interpret this prophecy. So uh, let me just tell you up front, this is hard, hard stuff. This is not easy. Uh, and there are different interpretations. And so uh, we're going to dig down, drilling down real deep today. And, and so I'm just telling you up front, like if you're tempted to check out on this one, if there's too much detail, uh, you know, that's okay. You can, you can check out if you want, and I won't be offended. But uh, the rewards of studying this prophecy are really worthwhile if you're, if you're willing to dig in there and hang in there with me. I think they're really well worth the cost. Now, that being said, I am premillennial, pre-tribulational, premillennial. Uh, like Chuck Swindoll says, I am so pre that I won't even eat post-toasties cereal. So if you're old enough to know what post-toasties cereal is, uh, then you'll get that one. Uh, so as a rule of biblical interpretation, uh, a premillennial interprets the Bible uh, in its normal or plain meaning in its historical context, unless the passage is obviously intended to be uh, taken uh, somehow uh, spiritually or figuratively or symbolic or if figures of speech are used. Uh, most premillennials, though, believe that uh, in, in Daniel's prophecy of the uh, 70 weeks, the first 69 weeks ended with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just a couple of days before the crucifixion. And I'll show that to you on this particular slide. Uh, so we believe, as a, well, premillennials, I should say, believe that uh, there was the life of Christ. Uh, the, the 69 weeks ends at the, uh, at the triumphal entry of Jesus. 
Uh, the 70th week waits further fulfillment. Uh, we are currently living in a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And the 70th week will be fulfilled during the tribulation period, after the rapture, and at Jesus' second coming, which inaugurates the millennial kingdom. So that's just overview of what the premillennial, uh, pre-tribulationist believes. Now, an amillennial believes that scripture can be interpreted figuratively, uh, spiritually in a way. Uh, so they don't demand precise timing in the exact fulfillment of scripture or of prophecy. Uh, so specific and historical accuracy uh, and chronological accuracy in the fulfillment in specific events is not necessarily the goal in their way of thinking. Uh, the fulfillment of prophecy is more spiritual and it's more theological rather than chronological and historical. Uh, and so that's one way to interpret uh, scripture. And Christians, uh, they can still be Christians and, and do that. So uh, th it's not like they're out of our camp, which is what I'm, I'm trying to stress to you. Uh, but they say that we're living in this 70th week now. Uh, the age that we're living in, that long gap that you see in blue, uh, that is the kingdom that we're living in now, the 70th week. Uh, and so it's a very long 70th week, but it is the 70th week, according to them. So as you can tell, I'm going to present this from a premillennial standpoint, but I'm going to try and do justice and, and, and certainly give respect to the amillennial view because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a view that many esteemed scholars hold, and, uh, and I respect those scholars very much. So I hope this is going to make more sense to you as we go along, but we're going to, we're going to go a little deeper into this uh, than just that brief overview. So uh, we've had the scripture uh, read and uh, verses 9 tw to 24 to 27. So we're just going to dive right into verse 24, uh, looking at the Hebrew. And the first question we're going to ask is, what is the purpose of the 70 weeks? So before we answer the question, let's just realize, recognize that in the Hebrew, uh, the word weeks is actually not in the original Hebrew. It actually says 77s are decreed. 77s are decreed. Uh, so the sevens can refer to days or weeks or months or years or really any unit of time uh, that an interpreter might want to put on it. But almost all scholars interpret the 77s as 70 sets of years or 490 years. Uh, so that's how, how the math would work out. Uh, years, because 490 days or months wouldn't allow enough time for Daniel's prophecy to be fulfilled. And, and from our perspective, 2,500 years later, uh, we can see uh, clearly the fulfillment of these 490 years. It corresponds perfectly with what we see in history, while days and months do not. Now, the second thing about it before we dive into the purposes is that I want you to see that uh, this prophecy is directed to the people of Israel, to the Jews, to Jerusalem. So the 70 weeks that have been decreed for your people and your holy city, these are God's people, this is Jerusalem, and God's holy people are the Jews. So this prophecy cannot be directed toward the church, nor can it be fulfilled by the church or in the church, uh, because the Jews are God's holy people, and Jerusalem is his holy city. So that'll be important as we go. So next now comes the list of six things uh, which God will accomplish for Israel during the 70 weeks. And the first three describe Israel's sin, to finish transgression, uh, to end rebellion, uh, your translation might say. This is the end of Israel's rebellion of God. Israel's transgression against God will end at Christ's second coming after the tribulation period when Israel repents and turns to the Lord as Paul predicted in Romans chapter 9 through 11. 
Now, in my mind, in no way can you argue that this was possibly fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ because the Jews did not finish their sin, and it was, in fact, them who were responsible for getting Jesus crucified in the first place. So uh, that has to happen in the future. Uh, The second purpose that God has is to make an end of sin, Uh, and that most likely means Jesus is taking away of Israel's sin uh, uh, when when Israel repents in the future uh, at some point in time when he returns. A third point, a uh, third purpose, is to make, um, make atonement for iniquity. Now, most scholars would agree that this refers to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins to pay for our sins. Uh, in particular, he's talking about how that work will be applied to Israel's sin in the future when Israel turns and repents. The fourth uh, purpose is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, no one would deny that when Jesus came the first time, he brought the kingdom of heaven with him and he brought righteousness with him. Uh, So there is an already sense of fulfillment to this passage. And in fact, there's even a present sense of fulfillment to this passage in that uh, the Holy Spirit lives in believers. He lives in you and me. And so in in some sense, Jesus uh, and the kingdom of heaven do exist on the earth right now. Uh, But what's being referred to here is an everlasting righteousness, a righteousness that will last forever, which can only be accomplished at Jesus' second coming. Uh, So he will usher in an age whose very essence is righteousness, right? Which I don't think anybody could argue that today is that day, right? Where today uh, can be characterized by an essence of righteousness that certainly does not exist presently. So he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy. That's the fifth purpose. And this probably uh, refers to God finally fulfilling all the prophecy which he has uh, spoken uh, about the Jews uh, related to the new covenant that God made with Israel. And so when Jesus comes again, he will seal up or he will complete uh, his plan for the earth. And then the sixth purpose is that God will anoint the most holy place. Now, some scholars think that this might refer to when Judas Maccabeus defeated Antiochus Epiphanes at the the temple in 164 BC and and rededicated the temple. Uh, That's one possible interpretation. Others think it refers to Jesus at his baptism when God parted the clouds and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, But most premillennials believe that it refers to uh, the anointing of the holy of holies, which will stand at a future temple that will be built uh, in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom or to Jesus when he takes his earthly throne in the millennial kingdom. So all of this to say that God has a plan for Israel. He's got a plan for Israel, uh, which he will accomplish during those 70 years. And God's promise, or 70 weeks, God's promises are eternal. And he will not set aside Israel uh, because they are his holy people. And he has not replaced the church, or the Israel, with the church, as our millennials often argue. So at the end of those 70 weeks, God is going to uh, fulfill these six purposes to Israel, and he will bring all the blessings that he promised to Israel through the new covenants uh, and the covenant with Abraham and the covenant that he made with David, that a descendant of David's will always sit on the throne. All right, so far so good. This is the easy part, brothers and sisters. Verse 24 is the easy part. If you thought that was hard, strap up. Uh, So here we go. Verse 25, what event starts the first 69 weeks? So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. 
So remember, this is the angel, Gabriel, speaking to Daniel, and this is what he's saying to him. Seven and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks, would begin to run at the time a decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now that's really important. It's not rebuilding the temple. It's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And so, uh, when did the 69 weeks begin? Well, there are four separate decrees uh, that, that uh, scholars uh, argue for in terms of which decree this might be referring to in Daniel verse 9.25. The first one is Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple in 538 BC. Is this the decree that is being referred to in Daniel 9.25? Well, we covered this back in the book of Ezra. Uh, you'll remember that in 538 BC, Ezra decreed that uh, the Israelites could leave uh, uh, their, their imprisonment there and return from exile back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple. Uh, and so they began under Zerubbabel and Jeshua the priest uh, to rebuild the temple until there was antagonism from the locals and construction on the temple stopped for about 16 years uh, then Haggai and Zechariah prophesied, encouraging them to rebuild the temple, which they started to do again in 520 B.C. and finished the temple in about 515 B.C. Now, amillennials often use this date, 538 B.C., as the starting point of the 69 weeks. And I have read, noted, and respected amillennials like Sam Storms and H.C. Leupold. And as I said earlier, I have great respect for these guys, uh, very knowledgeable and learned scholars. Uh, and here's what the 538 BC argument has going for it. Um, Daniel had been reading in the book of Jeremiah about Israel's captivity, the 70-year captivity that they were in. Uh, and they were in Babylon, and, and Daniel knew himself that he personally had been in captivity for 66 years. So it's coming to the end of the 70 years. And so Daniel starts praying, as Jeremiah suggested. Uh, when, you, uh, when the 70 years are up, you will pray to me, you will return to me, and I will restore you, uh, says the Lord. And so Daniel prayed that, that prayer, as we talked about, in 539 B.C., uh, nearing the end of the, of the 70 years. So wouldn't we expect uh, that, that the answer, God's answer to that prayer, uh, would come very near in time to when Daniel prayed it, uh, namely 538 B.C., when the exiles returned back to Jerusalem, uh, and not some, some point in the distant future? And I think that's a very good point, and I think that's a point that deserves to be answered. I see at least three problems uh, with that argument uh, that Cyrus's decree starts in 538 BC. And the first problem is that uh, there is no mention of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem in 538 BC in, in that decree uh, from Cyrus to rebuild the city, uh, to rebuild the temple. Only the temple is mentioned. Uh, and the way it talks is in verse 25, the city will be rebuilt again with plaza and moat, uh, which seems to envision the completion of the rebuild of the city, uh, not just the temple, uh, which wasn't done until after Nehemiah's day, in fact, even uh, after 400 BC. So that's one problem, no mention of the rebuilding of the city. A second problem is that, you know, when God answers prayer, he doesn't always answer prayer exactly the way we have prayed it. You all may have noticed that in your lives, right? That God doesn't always answer exactly how we prayed it. So Daniel's prayer was relatively small in scope, right? When are we going to return from exile? And God's answer to the prayer was much larger in scale, showing his long-term plan for Israel's ultimate redemption in Christ, not merely the return temporally, earthly, from Babylon. So that's a second problem with 538. 
And a third problem is that accounting 490 years from 583 BC ends in a date in the first century BC in which nothing of, of any specific note happened that could mark uh, the specific end of these 70 or 69 weeks from running. Now, as I said earlier, amillennials argue that that doesn't really matter because interpretation doesn't require exact mathematical precision. In fact, Sam Storm says that the 70 weeks are more figurative than literal and more theological than chronological. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't find that satisfying when applying a literal interpretation of the scriptures uh, results in precise historical fulfillment of these 69 weeks. So I reject that 538 BC date. Now there's another decree, a decree by Darius in 520 BC. Is that the decree uh, that is being referenced in 925? We also studied this when we were in Ezra chapter five. Remember when Tatnai the governor saw that the, the Jews were rebuilding uh, the city again, or be, rebuilding the temple again, uh, after Haggai and Zechariah's prophecy, he sent a letter back home. He sent a letter back to the king, uh, to uh, King Darius, not the Darius of Daniel, this is a later Darius, uh, and he asked the king to search the records and see if there has been authorization made uh, to rebuild uh, this temple. And so Darius searched the records and he said, yes, in fact, there is a decree from Cyrus who said they can rebuild this temple. So Darius decreed that the work continue and in fact uh, funded it and told people that they should not bother the Jews. This work should continue without interruption. Now, could this be the decree? I don't think so, because this decree really only restated what Cyrus said in 538 BC, and there is no mention of rebuilding the city, uh, and only the temple is mentioned. And again, if you count 583 year, or 483 years, you again land in the middle of the first century BC when nothing happened that would mark the end of the 70 weeks. So this date doesn't work either. How are we all doing out there? You all with me? A lot of dates. I just want to keep you awake. I want you to be with me here. And when you get to the end, you're going to say, that was worth it. That's what I'm hoping for. All right. So how about a third potential decree? Artaxerxes' decree in 457 BC. Uh, we studied this in Ezra chapter 7. You know, when I studied, uh, when I chose to study Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, you know, in the beginning of the year, I didn't really have Daniel in mind at all, but I'm so glad we did it because now we can say, you know, I remember that. We are well-versed in Ezra and Nehemiah, and so we remember these things. We studied this decree in Ezra chapter 7. Uh, this decree by Artaxerxes encouraged a second wave of exiles to return from Babylon back to Israel. And in fact, this was the return that Ezra personally led. He came with the second wave of exiles. Uh, but this decree was about financing temple worship. Uh, and it was, there was nothing in this decree, again, about rebuilding Jerusalem. Uh, so there's a problem with this date. Uh, and again, uh, some who argue for this date say that the end of the 483 weeks then, the 483, uh, I'm sorry, the 69 weeks, the 483 years, is Jesus' baptism, uh, which happened you know, at the start of his public ministry uh, in the late 20s. But the problem with that is that Jesus was not cut off and having nothing at his baptism, right? He was cut off and had nothing after his triumphal entry into the city when he was rejected and then crucified. Uh, so again, uh, I don't find this date satisfying either. So that only leaves one, and that is Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March 5th, 444 BC. When we were in Nehemiah, we studied this in Nehemiah chapter two. 
Remember, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, and he had received word that Jerusalem was in ruins, and so he was sad before the king. And the king said to him, why are you sad, Nehemiah? Why is your face downcast? And Nehemiah said, well, my city is in ruins. Uh, What would you have? Uh, What would you ask of me, says Artaxerxes. And, And so Nehemiah says, I'd like to go back to rebuild the city. And so Artaxerxes gives him letters, sends uh, letters with Nehemiah authorizing this. And so this is the date for the starting of the 69 uh, weeks that I prefer because Artaxerxes decreed the rebuilding of the city. And as we'll see, using this date as the starting point results in a precise end date of the 69 weeks at Jesus' triumphal entry when he presented himself as king and then was rejected, cut off, and killed. Okay. You may have noticed that there are three specific divisions of this prophecy, right? There are seven weeks, there are 69 weeks, and there is one week. So what's with the division of the 69 weeks into seven weeks and then 62 weeks? What does it mean that there will be seven and then 62? Now, I'm not going to say this to you with any dogmatism, as though this has to be right, uh, but I think what makes the most sense is that Artaxerxes' decree in 440 BC started the clock running on a, a first set of seven weeks, 49 years. Uh, so even though uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 tells us that Nehemiah rebuilt the wall in 52 days, uh, the book of Nehemiah also tells us that when he came to Jerusalem to inspect it, the rubble was so high that he could not even cross it on his horse. And so it is certainly possible that it took 49 years to clear all that rubble and to rebuild the city. And so that may be the explanation of the first 49 years of this. And the troublesome times in which it was built at the end of verse 25 certainly speaks to Nehemiah's experience with all the trouble that he had from the locals as he was trying to rebuild uh, the walls and the city. So that may account for the first seven uh, weeks or 49 years. And they're immediately followed by 62 more weeks. All right, so we've said the starting point is March 5th, 444 BC. What event ends the 69th week? This is Daniel 926. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end end, there will be war, desolations are determined." So his being cut off refers to the anointed one, the Messiah, this is Jesus' crucifixion. And most likely having nothing means this is the Jews' perception of him after they had killed him and buried him in a tomb, right? Now he had no more power to be a nuisance anymore to them. At least that's what they thought, right? They didn't understand uh, that his death was necessary to satisfy God's wrath against our sins or that he would rise from the dead, a defeating death and purchasing the salvation of our souls. So, what event marks the end of the 69th week? Remember, that happened before Messiah was cut off. That's what the verse says. Uh, It happened before Messiah was cut off. So, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, when he presented himself as king uh, at at the start of his Passion Week, this is the date that marks the end of the 69 weeks. Now, We've been detailed already. We're going to get more detailed. So I want you to really try and hang with me for these next couple minutes, uh, and I think you'll be amazed at the precise fulfillment of this prophecy. As I said to you, Artaxerxes most likely issued this decree on March 5th, 444 BC. Well, how do I know that? Well, I'll tell you how. Uh, Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, died in Kislev, or December, 
465 BC. And of course, uh, Artaxerxes immediately succeeded him as king. But the Persians didn't count the year that they became king as the first year of their king, king uh, kingship. Uh, they counted the first full year as their first year of their reign. So Artaxerxes' first year was not 465 BC, it was 464 BC. Now, according to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah looks sad before Artaxerxes in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, which takes us from 464 to 444 BC. Okay, so we're in 444 BC right now. And then according to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, Artaxerxes' decree happened in the month of Nisan, which corresponds to our March 444 BC. So we're in March 444 BC right now. The specific day of March or Nisan is not mentioned, but uh, if we count backwards from the end date, the, 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 uh, Jesus' uh, entry into Jerusalem, we can exactly pinpoint that it was March 5th, 444, 444 BC. So we need to pinpoint the day of Jesus' death. Well, how do we do that? That's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, because the date depends on the day Jesus died, and, and scholars have a lot of different opinions about that. Uh, and these, these arguments are very complicated. But many scholars agree uh, that the date of Jesus' death was Nisan 14, or April 3rd, 33 AD, which would make Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just four days earlier, Monday, Nisan 10, uh, uh, or March 30th, 33 AD. So that's the end date, March 30th, uh, 33 AD. Uh, so we could count that back and we could land exactly at uh, 483 years. But how? How do we do that? If we do the math here between 444 BC and 33 AD, there are only 476 years. You could, you could, you could do the math yourself. So how do we get 483 years into 476 years? Well, by realizing that the Jews did not use our calendar. Uh, the Jewish calendar had only 360 days, not 365 days. Uh, so, uh, if we did the math, 483, 360-day years equals 173,880 days, all right? 173,880 days. Uh, and so if we count back 173,880 days from March 5th, 444 BC, I'm sorry, from, Jew, uh, from uh, March 30th, I'm sorry, if, <laughs> let, me, let me do that again. Counting back 173,880 uh, days from March 30th, 33 AD lands us on March 4th, uh, March 5th, 444 BC. My goodness, the dates are even confusing me. So many dates, so many days. So, uh, what we have is exactly 483 years, if you count back from uh, the date of Jesus' triumphal entry to the date of Artaxerxes' decree, we have exactly that number of days. So if you wanted to, to really go crazy and translate that into our years, uh, you could do this. Translate it into 365-day years, considering 116 leap years and 24 days between March 5th and March 30th, that's 476 years, but still 173,880 days exactly uh, from Artaxerxes' decree until Messiah is cut off. Now, I just think that's astounding. Uh, maybe that's too much for you, but I am amazed by that. Uh, using 
Artaxerxes' decree as the starting point and Jesus' triumphal entry as the end date, we have exact fulfillment of the 69-week prophecy. And that's harder to get right than hitting an asteroid from 7 million miles away. I just find that staggering. Uh, rockets are just math, right? But predicting the future and controlling the future, only God can do that. So I hope that that is astounding to you as it is to me. But what about these other events that are mentioned in verse 26? Then after uh, the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So most commentators agree that the, effect, that the event referred to here is the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 A.D., and we know that the temple wasn't actually destroyed by a flood of water. It was destroyed by a flood of soldiers, uh, but still it was destroyed. Uh, the people of the prince who is to come could be translated the people of a ruler who is to come. So the people were the Roman army who destroyed the temple. And Titus, the general of that Roman army, may be the one referred to in verse 26 since he was the general of the Roman army. But even if he is, then we have to see a double fulfillment here. There has to be a future ruler who is to come uh, because, as we'll see in verse 27, uh, the ruler who is to come is a future antichrist, a political ruler who will arise from the reconstituted Roman Empire as predicted in Daniel chapter 2. Now, do you remember all the way back in Daniel 2, going back about three months ago now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue? In Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue, there was a head of gold, that was Babylon, right? There were arms of uh, silver, that was Persia. There were the belly and thighs of bronze, that was Greece. And then there were the legs of iron, that was Rome. And then after, there was going to be this future empire that was made up of iron and clay, and the Antichrist is going to arise to rule this empire. Now, uh, here's where it gets tricky about the premillennial view and the amillennial view. Uh, as to the timing of the debate of the destruction of the temple, the debate among premillennials and amillennials is whether uh, they happened in the gap between the 69th and 70th week or if they happened in the 70th week as amillennials believe. Amillennials believe in continuous weeks. They don't see any gap between the 69th and 70th week. Well, why the fight? Who cares? What is the difference? Whether this happened in the 69th week, in the 70th week, in a gap, whatever. Well, the difference is that uh, amillennials believe that the church has replaced Israel as the focus of God's blessing and that God is now blessing the church in a figurative 70th week uh, that, is, that we're currently in now. Uh, whereas premillennials believe that God's promises to Israel are eternal and will be fulfilled in a future 70th week following this gap that we're living in now, which we call the church age. Uh, and that 70th week will be the tribulation period. Now, to hold to the amillennial position, I think any amillennial will tell you this even, is that one has to interpret the scriptures spiritually or figuratively rather than literally. So uh, noted amillennials, Amillennial, Sam Storms, interprets the 70 weeks figuratively, and he'll tell you that. Uh, in his thinking, the seven-year seven year periods don't have to be precisely literal. That's why he believes that though the temple was destroyed 37 years after 
Christ's uh, rejection at his death, it still happened in the first half of the 70th week. So according to him, the first half of the 70th week uh, ran from Jesus' baptism, which would have been late 20s, to 70 AD. That's about 43 years or so. Uh, and then the middle point of the week is the destruction of the temple. And then the second half of the week is the church age, which we are living in now, where the church replaces Israel and receives its blessings. Now, premillennials argue that there is a gap between the 69th and 70 weeks, which we're living in now, which is called the church age. And so there must be a gap in order to fulfill scripture literally. And as Dwight Pentecost explains, according to Daniel 9.26, the anointed one was not cut off in the 70th seven. He was cut off after the, 60, the seven and 62 sevens had run their course. So this means that there is an interval between the 69th and the 70th sevens. Christ's crucifixion then was in that interval right after his triumphal entry, which concluded the 69th seven. And this interval was anticipated by Christ when he prophesied the establishing of the church in Matthew 16. Remember, he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall never prevail against it. So... What about uh, this 70th week? We're in the gap now, but the 70th week is coming. So uh, what is this going to look like? Uh, in uh, Daniel 9.27 says, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So, the 70th week. In the beginning of the 70th week, this is right after the rapture, uh, the Antichrist will make a political covenant with the many, which is Israel, thy people, from verse 24, uh, which will guarantee their safety and the continuation of sacrifices and, temple and, and, and worship uh, for a period of one week or seven years. But in the middle of that, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant with Israel. And then he will, in the second half, mercilessly persecute Israel in the event that we call the Great Tribulation. And this is God's promised discipline on Israel to make them repent so that they will turn back to him. And that will continue in the tribulation period until the second coming of Christ when Israel repents and Jesus destroys the Antichrist and he begins to rule in his millennial kingdom. And this event referred to in verse 27 where, where Jesus kills the Antichrist is what is meant at the end of verse 27 where it says, until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Uh, so that is the Antichrist, the one who makes desolate. Jesus is going to bring his judgment on him. This event, this event is referred to in Revelation 19, when the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire, and Jesus uh, will bind Satan for a thousand years. And so that will happen when Jesus returns with his church. So about this gap, uh, does there have to be a gap? Well, in my view, there has to be a gap, and I will tell you why. There has to be a gap between the 69th and 70 years. And the first reason is, that, is this, that a gap provides for literal fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, as we've already seen. As I noted earlier, Sam Storm's view of, of this is, is certainly one way to look at it if you're not looking for necessarily literal interpretation of the scriptures as they are written. Uh, if you're all right with viewing them spiritually or figuratively or theologically, uh, you can get there. But if you're looking for literal fulfillment of the scriptures, that's also theologically accurate. 
These events that we just read about in verse 27 have not happened yet. They don't correspond to anything in history. And that's one reason why premillennials believe that this 70th week has to be yet future. We are not in it yet. It's coming, but we're not there yet. A second reason that there must be a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks is that it says that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing after the 62 weeks, not during the week, but after the week, during uh, or during the 70th week. So it has to happen in a gap between the two of them, between the 69th and 70th weeks. If there were no gap, why doesn't the scripture say it happened in the 69th week or in the 70th week? It says that it happens in between them. A third reason for believing that there's a gap is that the six purposes that God established for Israel in chapter 924 have not yet been fulfilled. Uh, he's still got a plan for Israel. These, these promises Uh, These purposes are all related to Israel, and Israel still has not finished its sin of disbelief, repented, and experienced all the everlasting righteousness that God promises. Now, an amillennial might argue that the purposes are now being fulfilled in the church, but as I said earlier, uh, these promises are specifically for Israel, and God has not forsaken Israel, his holy people, or his holy city. A fourth reason uh, that there must be a gap is that this person referred to in verse 27 who makes and breaks covenants is the future Antichrist who has not yet come on the scene. Uh, Titus, who perhaps an amillennial might argue Titus is the one in, in verse 26, but he made no covenant with Israel for him to break. So this has to refer to the future uh, ruler of this revo- uh, reconstituted Roman Empire that is mentioned in uh, chapter 2 of Daniel. Uh, this is the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Uh, this is the future Antichrist who will oppose the Lord and break his covenant with Israel. A fifth reason that there must be a gap is that the abomination that causes desolation has not yet been fulfilled. You may remember in Matthew chapter 25 when the apostles were marveling at all the beautiful buildings around, they said, "Uh, Lord, look at these amazing buildings. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will remain standing on top of one another. And so the apostles immediately reply, well, Lord, tell us, uh, when will these things be? And when will be uh, the sign of your uh, second coming? Uh, And so Jesus immediately answered that that before he came again, uh, the abomination of desolation spoken of by by the prophet Daniel would occur at that temple at that time. Now, the Roman destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD, right? But Jesus didn't come. So there must be another abomination that causes desolation that still awaits future fulfillment, and it will be fulfilled by the Antichrist before Jesus comes again, just before his second coming. All right, I know I have worn you out today. I have worn you out with all that. And if you caught 10% of that, honestly, I'd be pretty happy. Uh, But there is so much good stuff in here, and I would encourage you to further study in uh, Daniel chapter 9, 24 uh, to 27. Uh, This is hard to follow, even if you love prophecy. But what I want to leave you with is that God knows when the end is, and God knows the timing of when it will come. Uh, And that's why we study prophecy with great humility. What I've tried to do today is present to you what I think is the best interpretation of this prophecy, uh, given all the facts and and interpreting scripture literally. But my argument is certainly not without flaws. People could poke holes in some of the things that I have said. Uh, And so uh, that's why there are multiple views. But in my view, if scripture can be interpreted literally and with such precision, why would we be looking for a figurative or spiritual uh, interpretation of it? Uh, I think the literal works just fine. 
Now, whether you agree with me or not about that on the finer details of this really doesn't matter. Uh, what really matters is how we apply these difficult verses to our lives. So let's do that right now. The first thing I want you to know and remember is that Jesus wins. Right? I mean, we can just distill it all down to that. We, we read the book, we read the Bible, we know how the story ends. So whether you're amillennial, premillennial, or something else, whatever you might call yourself, the important thing is that Jesus Christ is coming again, and he will make all things right just as he promised. And even better news is that because Jesus wins, we win too, right? When we, we turn with him, we, with, we come with him, conquering enemies and inheriting the promised kingdom. So just applying that to your life, like whatever you may be going through right now, uh, God has such a big picture. He's got such a handle on everything. If he can control all that, he certainly can manage what's going on in your life. Uh, so uh, God has a plan for what he's, going, uh, what he's doing in your life as well. Uh, and even though you might be going through something very difficult, it's temporary. It, it does not last forever. When Jesus comes, our salvation, our eternity, our joy will last forever. So that's the first thing. Jesus wins, and we can trust Scripture, and we can trust God. If God can orchestrate events like this and predict them with perfect accuracy to the very day, well, we can trust God regarding all the promises that he's made regarding uh, the second coming and our eternal destiny, uh, that they are also true. Even if we don't understand every single detail uh, perfectly, uh, there's never, ever been a single mistake in the Bible. Uh, it's ne it never will. It's God's perfect, infallible word, and it can't be wrong. So when God predicts the second coming of Jesus Christ and when Jesus says, I am coming again, we can take that promise to the bank. He is trustworthy. His word is true. He is sovereign and he is good. Now, what we should do is to be ready, right? We can talk about prophecy and we can, you know, guess at, as, as to when Jesus may come again. And, and a lot of us believe that he's kind of come in our lifetimes and that may be right. And if it is right, well, we better be ready. And how do we do that? Well, we be ready by being his disciples, by being people who, who love other people, who are sharing his gospel, who are, who are growing in the word and becoming more like Christ every day. And if we're doing that, when he returns, whenever that may be, he is going to be more than pleased with us when he finds us. So let's make that our goal, to be ready, though we may not understand prophecy. We're living in difficult times, just like Daniel did. So the best we can do is, like Daniel, be ready and trust the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, that's a very, very difficult passage that we just went through, and uh, it's, it's hard to navigate. And uh, Lord, uh, I just pray that, that, um, uh, that, that your word, Lord, just proves to be so accurate and so true uh, that if there's anybody uh, hearing my voice who is just not convinced that, that God, you are sovereign, a God, that you are in control, uh, God, that, that you have a plan for what's going on. Lord, I pray that they would take a look in further detail at J uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, and just see that you have everything under control, and everything happens exactly according to your timetable, and that the end will come when you decide it will come, Lord, but that you've already provided for us in the meantime by giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life, Lord. And I pray that any doubter, of scripture, uh, Lord, would, would think about these verses and think about you and, and the amazing work you've done, Lord, and, and come to Jesus and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.